All right. If the kingdom of God has come to earth, why have some people rejected it? They've witnessed it. Why have they rejected it while others embraced it? If it were really God ruling on earth, wouldn't everyone embrace it? If the kingdom of heaven has come, why is there all of this evil in the world? If the kingdom has come, why does it seem so small and insignificant? Why is it so hard to recognize it? So hard, in fact, that some people can't even recognize it. These are the questions in the minds of the people who would have seen and heard Jesus preach, teach, and heal countless people. Skeptics and disciples alike were wondering these questions, asking them to themselves. And so Jesus begins to teach through parables. He used everyday things like farming, baking, and fishing in his stories to teach people about how his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, operated. And he shares seven parables that are concrete depictions of a cosmic reality. They're counterintuitive. They seem upside down, and that's by design. Jesus intends to reorient your understanding of what the kingdom is like. Because if you allow him to do this, you'll be able to build your life on a firm foundation that will carry the power to pre uh, persevere through hardship, overcome evil with good, and witness a transformation of the world. These parables, they invite us to see how God is at work in our lives and in our world through Jesus' eyes. And today we're going to look at the fifth and sixth parables. They're called twin parables because of how similar they are. And you'll find them in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. And because the projector, I'm not going to say what I think of it right now, um, is giving us challenges, we, uh, I recommend either pulling up on your phone the passage or uh, the Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. And this is what it says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Let us hear from him today and see him as treasure that he is. And move our hearts, Lord, to respond the way we see this merchant and this man respond. We pray this for your glory and the joy that you want to give us in your name. Amen. I want to ask three questions really similar to last week's questions. What are these twin parables about? Why do we need to know this? And what is Jesus' invitation to us? What are these twin parables about? All of the parables in Matthew 13 are about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God referred to this long-awaited and glorious rule of God. The rule of God that would break into our world, and it was considered or thought of that it would happen on the day of the Lord. On this day, God would once and for all deal with all evil and sin and death, all of those things would be undone. God would restore the world that he created, and God's people would be set free from all of their oppressors because God was finally acting as king on earth. That's what the kingdom of God refers to, God acting as king. 
Therefore, wherever you see someone living with Jesus as king, the kingdom is there. And wherever you witness people building their lives based on the words of the king, the kingdom of God reigns there. Wherever you observe a community living in the ways of the king, the kingdom of heaven is present. Based on these expectations, though, you can understand why some of the Jewish people would be confused when hearing Jesus' message that the kingdom of heaven had arrived and then seeing what they saw in Jesus and the people surrounding him. And these first two parables that we see in Matthew 13, they're answering those questions of why are people rejecting his gospel? Why is there still evil in the kingdom if the kingdom has arrived? Then the parable of the, uh, the sower, uh, sorry, the parable of the sower answers that first question, why are people rejecting it? The parable of the, uh, of the wheat and the weeds is answering the question of why is there still evil if the kingdom has come? Both of these reveal that someone is actively working against the king's efforts. That there's someone who wants to undermine the sower's efforts to plant the good seed in his world. This next two parables after that are answering different questions. Why does the kingdom seem so small and so insignificant? That's what we looked at last week. The mustard seed and the leaven. They reveal that the kingdom begins in small and hidden ways, but it will grow, expanding and permeating every nook and cranny of the world. But our twin parables today, they're answering a different question, and it's related. And it's if there's someone who seeks to thwart the kingdom, advance, namely the evil, evil one, and if the kingdom a- a- arrives in, in the small and hidden ways, how will someone be able to actually discover the kingdom? How will they find it? See, these parables are about this incalculable value of the kingdom and its great price. And Jesus is giving us a pers- his perspective on what people do when they find it. You want to know what my kingdom is like? It's like a man who was out working in the field when he stumbled over something and discovered hidden treasure. He opened it up, and to his utter delight, he found precious jewels pouring out from it, and in joy and in excitement, he put the treasure back where he found it and went and sold everything he had to buy that field. You want to know what my kingdom is like? It's like a merchant whose business was focused on finding fine pearls. And when he discovered one fine pearl, unlike any other, more valuable than all the others he had seen in all of his years, he sold everything he had to buy that one pearl. Pearls to the ancients were the loveliest thing in the world. They are what many would consider like today, like diamonds. And we can see this commonality in these parables, why they're called twin parables. They both highlight something that's of great value that gets found, Both find it, and they sell everything they have to gain it. But the turning point isn't on what they give up. They sell everything. It's the reason they give it all up. It's the why they give it all up. They found something so overwhelming, so joy-filling, so life-giving in this discovery of treasure, of this precious pearl, and that's what changes things for them. That's what changes it. So why does Jesus tell us this parable? Why does it matter? Well, Jesus is showing us what it's like when people discover the kingdom of heaven. This is what people do when they discover me, Jesus says. This is what people do when they experience me, when they recognize me. Look at the the second half of verse 44. 
Then, we're told, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had. In his joy, he went. What's the joy? What is it that causes you to be in such a state of joy that you're willing to sell everything that you have to have it? It's Jesus. When you encounter Jesus Christ, you encounter grace, unmerited favor. You encounter mercy, not getting what you deserve, but what you don't deserve. You encounter kindness, God's desire to do all that is in his power to forgive, rescue, heal, restore, and renew you. The result of discovering Jesus is joy. Joy is a natural consequence of salvation. That's why joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And when someone rescues you and sets you free, welcomes you in, brings healing into your life, joy is this natural response. And through the century, the joy of the Lord has been what propelled people, followers of Jesus, to go out and make him known through acts of service and sharing what he had done for them. There is a joy that comes from discovering that the king of the cosmos didn't cling to his throne and crown, but instead he chose to become one of us and serve us. He suffered. He understands us. He laid down his life for us so that we could be made alive with God, so that we could be set free from the power of sin, Satan, and death. There's a joy that comes from encountering the Holy One and the Sinless One who chose to die for you when you weren't even interested in him. There's nothing you can do, have done, or will do, nor is there anything that's been done to you that changes the love of God for you. There is a joy that comes from discovering the kingdom of heaven and that it belongs to you. Jesus himself tells us in Luke 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, there's this joy that comes from being set free from always living without reference to God. There's a joy that comes from knowing the one in you is greater than the one in the world. There's a joy that comes from knowing that the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise you one day. Death is defeated, Satan is defeated, and sin no longer has power. You're set free. This joy is found in Jesus. And when you meet him, nothing is greater. If, if this is what life is like with God, this is what I want all the time. What do I have to do to experience this? This was the question I was asking myself as a 19-year-old when I first encountered Jesus' grace in a new way. It was 2007. I'm 19 years old. Nothing had gripped me the way Jesus and his kingdom had in that moment. Nothing had moved me to such joy, peace, this deep awareness of my sin, and yet at the same time, a great awareness of God's love for me. It was strange because the more honest I became in my life, the more he seemed to make his forgiveness known to me. What is this love? I had to have it, not just for a week or a weekend, but for life. The joy of entering Jesus' kingdom has always moved people to make life-changing decisions that others will deem unnecessary, unwise, and flat-out silly. It won't make sense. Because when you meet him, you begin to understand that his kingdom and his ways, they're built on divine love. The love of God, 
God rules his kingdom through love, not coercion, not threats, not manipulation, not violence, not love apart from truth as if that were possible, and not a love that is separate from justice, but a love that 